Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. None of us, I don't think, would begrudge Ruth had she chosen to walk away when she had the opportunity to do so. Moabite by birth, Ruth's short-lived marriage to the Israelite son of Naomi would end with the tragic passing of her young husband. Naomi, also widowed and now childless, understandably decided to return to her Israelite kinsmen and urge her young and newly widowed daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, to return to their Moabite homes, remarry and rebuild their lives. Her sons were gone. Her people were not their people. She was without means, and Naomi urged them to go do as they please, granting them the freedom to turn away a path that Ruth's sister or, sister-in-law, Orpah, justifiably chooses, but it's not as we know. We know the story, the path that Ruth chooses. In words as famous as they are poetic, Ruth declares to her mother-in-law, do not urge me to leave you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. The power of Ruth's pledge is not merely its lyrical quality or that she becomes a paradigm for a righteous convert to Judaism. Ruth's words and deeds capture the human imagination because she does that which does not come naturally to us as humans. Grant them freedom, she chooses responsibility. Conferred autonomy, she opts for commitment. Okayed the opportunity to put herself first, She does just the opposite and puts duty to others above all else. It's a theme that frames not just the opening of the book of Ruth, but the entire book. Ruth's chesed, her loyalty to Naomi, Naomi's chesed to Ruth and taking her in. Later in the book, Boaz's chesed to Ruth and allowing her to glean from the fields. And Ruth's chesed to Boaz and choosing him over a younger, perhaps more suitable suitor. Far more than a quaint pastoral idol or an inspiring tale of a Gentile woman entering the covenant of the Jewish people, the story of Ruth stands as a powerful commentary on the human condition, the story of a person or people forging community by elevating concerns for each other over their own, the quiet heroism of folk, of folk foregoing aspects of their own freedom in order to maintain and sustain the needs of the community as a whole. All of which is why I believe it's to the book of Ruth that will turn as a festival of Shavuot begins this evening. In Hebrew, Shavuot is referred to as Chag Matan Toratenu, the festival of the giving of the Torah, 
when the children of Israel stood at the base of Mount Sinai to affirm a brit, a covenant, with God. Seven weeks ago, we observed Passover, our festival of freedom, when the children of Israel broke away from the yoke of Pharaoh's bondage to be liberated as free men and women. For seven weeks of seven days, we've counted what's known as the Omer, a temporal and physical journey from the sea to Mount Sinai, which unlike the Jubilee year, culminates not with a declaration of freedom, but with Shavuot's message of law and commitment. A newly emancipated people granted the freedom to do as they pleased to wander the Midbar, the desert about which we read about this week, who choose nevertheless to direct their freedom towards establishing a covenanted community. If Passover is a fulfillment of God's command to let my people go, then Shavuot signals the fulfillment of the second half of that verse, so that they may serve me. Liberty in service of law. Personal autonomy directed to communal commitment. Self-determination going hand in hand with a sense of duty and obligation. Why do we read Ruth on Shavuot? Because when we stood there at Mount Sinai declaring we will do and we will listen, Israel did as a nation the very thing that Ruth did as an individual, the thing that's hardly the most natural or easiest thing for anyone to do. They leveraged and limited their freedom in service of the needs of the greater whole. The story of Ruth, the story of Shavuot, is that community is neither formed nor sustained by way of liberty alone. Our rights and freedoms are made acceptable, made meaningful, and made sacred only insofar as they are expressed in dialogue with the needs of the wider community of individuals with whom we live. Now, you may or may not know the story of Ruth, and you may or may not observe the festival of Shavuot. But if there has ever been a moment in which we have to speak openly about negotiating our rights and freedoms as individuals, with the duties that we have to the community in which we live, ours is it. Take nearly any issue on the public docket, COVID, the environment, free speech, reproductive autonomy, or most recently, gun control. Each and every one of these conversations, different as they are, involve the balancing act of the libertarian impulse to do as we please with the knowledge that the well-being of the community as a whole depends on establishing guardrails to those very liberties. Let's start with the First Amendment. Most all of us would identify free speech as a fundamental right, and yet we would all concede that that right doesn't grant us permission to shout fire in a crowded theater. Take the environment. We in this room may differ on certain aspects of our global climate crisis, but we can all agree, I hope, that our own behaviors make us contributors to the condition of the world in which we live. I know, because I know my congregants, that there are a range of views in this community regarding masks, boosters, and other public health measures meant to mitigate the spread and severity of COVID. But I imagine we all intuitively understand that the choices we make as individuals impact the health of the community at large. 
And yes, while there may be folk who differ on the right of private citizens to own guns, in light of the continued carnage of gun violence across our country, I hope that we can all agree that that right must go hand in hand with safeguards ensuring public safety. And, uncomfortable as it may be for many in this room, myself included, for reasons of intellectual probity, let's be mature enough to acknowledge that it is a question that cuts both ways. Those of us who would fight, as I do, for the right of women to assert sovereignty over their bodily autonomy must at least acknowledge the counter-question of society's obligations to the rights of the unborn. Different as these issues are, one to the other, each one is somehow situated on the question and the tension between our individual freedoms and our obligations one to the other. It was John Stuart Mill, the father of libertarianism, who coined what he called the harm principle, meaning that while individuals may be free to do as they please, they can do so only insofar as their actions do not cause them harm to other individuals. We have the right to drive, but that right comes with a requirement to be licensed, to wear a seatbelt, and stop at red lights. Doctors have the right to prescribe narcotics, but that right only comes by way of proper training, licensing, and protection against the abuse of that right. I could go on, but the point is one and the same. As individuals, of course, we may all have sorts of rights and freedoms, but as a community of imperfect humans, as a people and as a nation, we coexist only because those freedoms are governed by agreed-upon statutes and laws. As either Madison or Hamilton wrote in the gendered language of Federalist 51, what is government itself but the greatest reflection of all of human nature. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself. In other words, it's not either or. There are freedoms well worth establishing and defending, just as there are protections, limitations, and guardrails, sometimes self-imposed and sometimes imposed by others, worthy of the same defense. It is this negotiation between our individual rights and our shared obligations, one to the other, that's a central tension not just of our time, but not just in the foundational documents of Western culture from the Magna Carta to the Bill of Rights, but at the very heart of the Jewish tradition we call our own. From the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden itself, God is introduced to Adam and Eve with a freedom stated and then delimited. Of every tree of the garden you should eat, except for one, freedom with a limitation on that freedom. If you want to build a home, God bless. Just build a parapet around the roof to make it safe. If you want to own an ox, you should be well, but take precautions that that ox is not a goring ox that puts other individuals at risk. 
If you wanna plant a farm, a field, or an orchard, by all means, just be sure to designate a percentage of that harvest to the poor. And while these obligations may seem to be limitations on human freedom, most of the time, if not all of the time, these limitations are in truth expressions of our freedom. At risk of stating the obvious or restating the fourth commandment that a slave cannot take a Sabbath, only a free person can abstain from labor, a limitation that is in truth an expression of freedom. To eat anything that is set before us isn't freedom. To exercise discretion in the decisions of what we do and do not consume is to freely assert our humanity to the world. It's not the only way to understand the underpinnings of Jewish law, why we keep Shabbat, Kashrut, and otherwise, but I find it to be a rather compelling one. As Jews, self-expression and self-restraint, freedom and obligation, rights and duties aren't opposites. They're interdependent. They're two sides of the same coin. We fight for our freedoms and the limitations to those freedoms, knowing that both fights are necessary to keep society functioning and life worth living. In this moment of time, when the country is searching for the vocabulary to heal a society polarized on the question of rights versus obligations, it should occur to us in this room that our tradition, Judaism, has been negotiating this tension fruitfully, I would add, since its very beginning. I'm reminded of the wisdom of the great sage of our tradition, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who tells a parable of a group of people in a boat sailing when one of them begins to drill a hole beneath his seat. Why are you doing that? A fellow passenger asks. Do not concern yourself, the man replies. I'm only drilling under my seat. Maybe so, the fellow passenger responds. But when the waters enter, we're all gonna drown. Ours is a dark hour. Our nation is in pain. Countless lives have been lost. Families have been devastated. Communities have been upended. And it's just a matter of time until more pain is inflicted. Like Ruth, returning in grief following loss, we arrive in synagogue seeking solace and comfort, wondering whether our tradition speaks with relevance and urgency to the issues of the day. It's a question to which we answer with an unequivocal yes. Ours is a tradition demanding that private desire yield to public good. Ours is a tradition that knows that for civil society to be upheld, we must grant that society makes claims upon us. Ours is a tradition that believes that expressions of obligations to other individuals and the community at large are not infringements on our freedom, but actually the greatest expressions of our freedom. Not just at Shavuot, but year-round, our tradition urges us to leverage our freedoms towards building a society in which we freely accept our obligations one to another. Liberty without limits is not freedom that can or should be preserved. If we keep punching holes beneath our seats, this ship will sink. Like the hero of our season, Ruth, may our pledges to ourselves and each other reflect the very best of our tradition, a nation of we the people for the people, in which your people 
shall be my people, ever striving to form a more perfect union, one act of chesed at a time. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.